we overcome let's talk about what's true let's talk about good news let's talk about his love and how we overcome let's talk about what's true let's talk about good news ourselves in someone else's shoes we sing a song of victory and then we sing the blues but through the highs and lows no we ain't losing hope it's gonna be hard times gonna be long nights gonna be days when we're praying just to make it through but when it goes all wrong we gotta just hold on the promise that our strength you make beauty from the ashes you cover us in grace so when darkness tries to knock us down Shane told you a story 
you can't escape your past that the innocence you lost there's no way to get it back i heard fear sold you some fiction you bought everything he had made you too afraid to live and kept your heart under attack they say you're too guilty for his grace you're too far gone and now you're too late but the cross says they're wrong don't believe the words they say let the truth wash them away cause his blood says your love every lie is bound to leave when there's nothing I've been right there where you're standing All those things they told me to That I was out of second chances And I was only born to lose They said I was born to lose But the cross says Seacoast, good morning. My name is Jonathan. If you're able, will you stand with us this morning as we worship through song? Let's sing this together. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship His holy name. And sing like this. It's a new day dawning It's time to sing your song again Whatever may pass And whatever lies before me 
Love those words as we get started. Yeah, you may be seated for just a moment, and uh, we'll continue in our worship in just a moment. But um, just love that reminder of God's faithfulness to us, and that never changes. And as we were praying over uh, the service today, we were specifically thinking of anyone today who's here, who's here who needs to hear the message that God is still faithful, and He loves you where you're at in your pain and your uh, sorrow or whatever you're going through in your doubts. Um, we specifically were just praying that God would meet you in this place, and we believe that he will today. We have a great morning for you. Um, before we continue on, though, this uh, weekend is uh, Veterans Day weekend, 
And uh, so we uh, live in a country where we have the privilege and freedom to be able to worship. And we take that for granted. And, and you might think, well, of course we do. That's an easy thing. But there are places in, in the world that, doesn't ha- that do not have the freedoms that we have in America. And um, so we want to take a moment. Uh, we're so grateful for our country. Not perfect. Nowhere is. Um, but we have what we have because of the men and women who have served our country and who continue to do so. And we happen to be in a military community. And uh, for me, even this is, you know, I grew up, my dad was in the army, so I grew up. And when I think of Veterans Day, there's, uh, there's names, faces, army bases uh, that are part of my story um, to, that makes a day like this something that I understand. I've seen uh, firsthand what it means to have a family with a, a member who's serving uh, the country and, and sister-in-law, brother-in-law um, still serving. And so we are so uh, grateful for those veterans. And so we want to take a moment. And if you are a veteran, and also we're going to include in today, if you are uh, currently serving active duty or reserve, we would love to just thank you as a church. So could you stand where you are? I know some of you are out there and you're always afraid to be the first to stand. But, um, at, and if you're currently serving as well, thank you so much. And currently serving, yeah, we appreciate you. Um, we want to, we, we're so grateful for all of you and your families uh, that were part of the journey too. We want to pray for you um, now, so join me as we pray. God, we thank you so much. Uh, first of all, we thank you for this country, this country that we love, a country like many others that has issues. But God, we thank you that we have the freedom to worship We thank you that we have the freedom to express our ideas and that this is a country, Lord, that we're here because of the men and women who have served and continue to serve us. And we're grateful for them. And we thank you for them. We pray blessings over those lives for the men and women who are currently serving. God, we ask your blessings over their family. We ask your protection over them. Lord, we pray for our world leaders that you give them wisdom to make wise choices. Choices that pursue peace. And God, we pray uh, now that you just uh, remind us that even in a world of chaos, that you are a God who is in control ultimately. And all of our lives are in your hands. And so we thank you for that. Remind us of that truth today. And God, as we go through the rest of our weekend, I just pray just an extra special measure of blessing over those who serve and have served our country. We thank you for them now. Amen. We're going to continue to sing this morning. And uh, instead of encouraging you to stand, I'm going to have you be seated as we sing this song together to remind ourselves of the goodness of Jesus, that in Jesus we find perfect peace. Amen. So this morning, you can sit there if you want, or you can take in the words, or you can sing along. But let's just be reminded that There's perfect peace. There's rest that is found in Jesus.
Rest here in His wondrous peace. Know the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, He is all that I need. May it become what day that I rest all my days in the goodness of Jesus. Come find what this world cannot offer. Come and find your joy here complete. Taste of it. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your mercy this morning, that we can taste and see that you are good, that you're sweeter than honey, that there's nowhere else 
that we can go to receive eternal life. This morning, will you speak to us through your servant? Will you be glorified in this place? Will you be known so that we may leave here changed? That we, your people, know the goodness of Jesus. So we thank you. We give you the glory and praise in Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Seacoast. My name's Natalie. Leah. We are so happy. Wow, you're really happy to uh, (laughs) welcome you here for this Sunday. If you are new here, we would love to get you to know you. We have uh, some hospitality uh, team out right through these doors. We'd love to uh, just hear your story, give you a free gift. Um, But everybody, you can come and scan that uh, QR code that's right in the back of the seat there and learn even more about Seacoast, uh, our ministries, our life groups that you can get plugged into, and all of the exciting holiday events that are coming up, including... Deck the Halls! Deck the Halls is coming up next Sunday, November 19th, after the second service. We will be decorating the campus, getting it ready for the Christmas season. We would love your help. If you'd like to join us, sign up at respond.church. Let us know you're coming. Lunch will be provided, so please let us know you're coming so we can have enough food. And if you have a conviction about decorating before Thanksgiving like me, just know that it's okay because we have to have it all Christmified before Sunday. Yeah, because next week Christmas starts. season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I worked it all out. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's a hard announcer for her. <laughs> That's why you did it. Okay, you've heard of Kids Night Out, but what about Kids Morning Out? This is coming up December 2nd from 9 to 12. If you have lots of Christmas shopping to get done and you don't want to be keeping track of kids at the same time, drop them off at church, and we will keep track of them for you. Uh, we'll have uh, breakfast, crafts, lots of activities going on. Uh, we do, I guess Katie doesn't want to have more than a 1,000 or so kids, so please go like to respond.church to uh, reserve your spot. They are um, wanting to know, of course, a head count, so we can have the same count when they leave. <laughs> that would be good. Um, but yeah, just uh, if you have family, just drop off those kids from 9 to 12, December 2nd, and it'll be uh, a good uh, break for you to get shopping, errands, sleeping done. All that, yeah. Next, we have the Christmas scene coming up, December 6th. This is one of my favorite events. We sing, we have time of music together, treats, warm drinks, good time of community, um, celebrating the Christmas season. And that will be from 6 to 8 p.m. That's December 6th. And what if you wanted to volunteer oh, to help? if you want to volunteer, we would love your help. We need drink station people. We need set up, tear down people. Respond.church, please let us know that you'd love to help. And when you say tear down people, you mean like literally not like tearing people down? No, right. no, okay. not at all. Yeah, only building up and yeah, Good. taking down things. Uh, last <laughs> announcement for this holiday season, we are going to join with Hope Academy for Toys for Hope. So if you would like to participate uh, giving toys to Kids, uh, I think they're looking for toys between three months to Mm -hmm. 16 years. Uh, And just over the next three weeks, you can bring those new toys unwrapped, and we'll be collecting them just to uh, bless the San Diego families, communities who aren't able to uh, have a Christmas like uh, we are used to having with giving gifts to their kids. So yeah, Mm -hmm. join Mm -hmm. us in that. Mm -hmm. All right, next we'll transition into our scripture reading for today. We're going to do it um, with street lights, street lights that um, Inner City Chicago group, like we did a couple weeks ago, they um, made this audio Bible so that they could reach their peers with the gospel. So it's a long section today. It's John 11. 
Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. She told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed that she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. He was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. 
But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. And Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Okay, I don't know about you, I didn't want it to end right there, right? <laughs> keep, keep going, unbelievable, right? This beautiful, incredible story in John chapter 11. So good to be with you as we open God's word together. Let me pray for us and let's jump in. I'm gonna tell you kind of where we're going here with this. And Lord, we thank you that we got to listen to something that people actually saw, that they saw you say, Lazarus, come out, and he did. And so, Lord, we drink that in. We celebrate that you are the resurrection and the life. And now as we learn from you and listen to you, Lord, I pray that your life would infuse us, you would infuse us with your resurrection life. Join us, please. Would you, Jesus, walk with us and guide us through this. In your name we pray, amen. John chapter 11, in this section in John, we find John's final miracle. That's the last one that he records that Jesus performed. John's gospel is structured around seven I am statements where Jesus claims, this is who I am, I'm God Almighty in these ways, and then seven miracles. And this is the final miracle. Why does that matter? Well, it's the crescendo miracle. <laughs> It's the ultimate miracle, if you will. Jesus' miracles began with the wedding feast at Cana where he made water into wine. And that signified something that was going to be really significant as we began to look at what it is that Jesus had brought, that he was bringing good news. And that good news was going to create a celebration and a party in heaven. And that celebration and a party in heaven wasn't just something that was going to happen for a little while. It was going to happen for eternity. And in fact, the revelation of John pictures this party in heaven that happened that is called the marriage feast of the Lamb in which Jesus, the groom, will have the bride of Christ, which is the church and this incredible, lavish, rich, amazing celebration that will last for all of eternity. And so Jesus inaugurates or begins what it is that God is going to do and the way he's going to do it is he's going to have dead people become alive in him and he's going to join with them for all eternity so that's why it's the crescendo miracle it begins with this it ends over here with this and everything in between supplies what it is that Jesus is doing in human history and so we see this incredible picture with with Lazarus and this incredible rich nuanced story and and so as we walk through it as we were kind of thinking okay how to do this and how to walk through this I'm going to walk through the whole passage really quickly and my temptation is going to be to talk too fast 
to try to cram more words in. So I promise you I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to, to do that. But we're going to walk through six things that we just observe in the passage and make connections to how it is that what we learn about Jesus connects with our actual lives as well. So we're going to walk through this crescendo miracle, hit these things, and then talk about the implications for our lives. We'll drop down in each one, okay? So here, here we go. I, I, I'm, with all of that introduction, we're going to jump in here with this first principle that we have in John chapter 11, and it goes, it goes like this, that Jesus loved this family, okay? That's where we start in this, that Jesus loves this family. We hear that over and over again in the beginning, and I've listed the places where that is actually exclaimed, that Jesus loves this family. And and, and by doing this, as John introduces us to this and Jesus' love for this family, he does something really interesting and helpful for most of us. He takes God's love from something that is kind of theoretical to something that is incredibly practical and real and close. How does he do, how does he do that? Well, over and over again, as Jesus' Jesus's love for this family is, is articulated and is proclaimed, we have these moments where we begin to realize, okay, this moves from the theoretical to the kind of love that you and I, well, it's why we go all over the country to be together for Thanksgiving, right? That people travel all over the country to be with people that are their what? Their loved ones, Right? And so we invent terms like friendsgiving to, for, because sometimes it's not always with family, but somehow there are people that really matter to us. And what's dawned on me is I anticipate, Debbie and I anticipate, that we're going to join with our kids and our granddaughter, who, by the way, at two months old, already knows how to FaceTime us. She's gifted, like she's really, she's really gifted, but you know, yeah, she already knows how to FaceTime us. God bless her, it's fantastic. Her parents chime in a little bit in there as well, but okay, enough of that drop down. But we're anticipating being together. And so this morning, literally over our kind of our morning briefing coffee in the morning, this morning, Debbie looks at me, she says, why, why are you smiling? You know, it's oh dark, whatever. And I, I'm smiling because in five, six days, our kids are going to be here. And our granddaughter, who doesn't have to FaceTime me anymore, she can just talk to me in there. And I'm smiling because I smile when I think about them. Jesus smiled when he thought about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That is, every thought of them just made him smile. It goes from this kind of this construct, this theoretical thing that God loves because God ought to love, to Jesus smiling when he thought about his family. And Jesus smiles when he thinks of you. When he thinks of you. He kind of gets that distant look in his eye, and someone asks him, Jesus, what are you smiling about? Well, I was just thinking about you. In this beautiful picture of the closeness and the accessibility of genuine love, 
It's not just out there and it's not just abstract. It's right here and it's personal and it's eyeball to eyeball and shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart. Jesus, we have this picture of Jesus loving this family. Now, why belabor this point? Well, it's because the next principle, that, that we have that and it's beautiful and it's right there and it's close and all those things. And, and we need that because the next principle gets us into part of the tension of the passage. And you heard it, it was, as it was read and perhaps you've read John 11 a million times. But, but here's, the, here's the next principle. Jesus intentionally delayed coming to the family. What? This is not always the way that we think about coming alongside people that we love who make us smile that are in trouble, right? Usually we think, why? I'm going to move heaven and earth to get to you. And we see that in Jesus over and over and over. He did that all the time. He flew into people's needs. He, just, he did that all the time. That's even the, the, the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. His mom comes to him, says, Jesus, are you going to do something about that? Hello, right? Woman, it's not, the, it's not my time yet. But yes, he does. He turns the water into wine. So Jesus customarily moves right into people's need because he loves them, he cares about them, he smiles at every remembrance of them, and this time he does something completely different. He intentionally delays coming to this family. Lots of spaces where that delay is articulated in this passage. And the sequence really matters. See, John, in the brilliance of the way that he's helping us understand Jesus, begins with Jesus really loves these people so that his delay cannot become, be because he is displeased with them or disappointed with them or distant from them or any of the other D's that he might be in there. He cares about them. So what is going on? Well, John gives us this little peer into it that said, this is for the glory of God, that this is what is happening. And so what we have here then in this scenario, in this circumstance, is something that happens all over the time, and that is that God has some kind of bigger purpose in mind. That this is what is happening here. And, well, that's a challenge sometimes for me in the delay. In fact, I, I think that there, there's a word that if I could eliminate it from kind of the way that I live my life or the way I think things ought to be done would probably cause me to sleep a lot better and would probably cause me to have a lot less whatever, frustration or anxiety or stress or something like that, and the word is now. That if I could just remove now from my vocabulary and my expectation and my thinking, that I would probably kind of calm down a whole bunch. But there's something about that now, there's something about my urgency or whatever that causes me when there is delay in God or someone else moving in something to ask a couple of different questions, particularly of God. Here's the first question. God, do you see this? <laughs> do you see what's happening here? Are you paying attention? Are you engaged? Are you? And the second one is, God, do you care? 
Thankfully, we have psalms that give language to us to be able to communicate just the angst, the tension, the frustration of the now, or I can't see it, or what is actually happening here in this moment here. But in this, I, I, I say to myself, okay, God, do you see this? And of course, being, you know, having some training and reading my Bible and being a pastor and whatever else I was going to line up in there, I think, well, I can't think that or whatever. That didn't really make, that's not going to make any sense. God doesn't see because he's all these omnis. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all these omnis. So he can't be, that can't be the, the problem or whatever. So now I'm left with, do you care? And I know, okay, I know. Okay, so wait, wait a second. Okay, how, how did this thing start again? Jesus loves the family. He smiles every time he thinks about it. He's crazy about him, over and over and over again. And to this and with this, love, this family that he loves so much, he intentionally delays in the face of death because he's going somewhere. And so, yes, he knows, and yes, he cares, but there's something more afoot and it allows me to live in that place where though I feel the tension so deeply, I'm able to say, God, I already know you love me. That's a settled thing. And so join me, would you please, in the tension? Because I believe you see it, and I desperately want to see the way that you care in this moment. And in the midst of all of that tension, in that tension, and you guys already know where the story is going, right? In the midst of all this tension, we have this next principle. So we got Jesus loves the family. He intentionally delays. And then this, this next section we have right here, he proclaims as he joins with the family that Jesus is, that he is the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection of the life. Lazarus is dead. Okay, and I am the resurrection and the life, and he invites then them, the, the sisters, to believe this. Okay, when Jesus is talking about being the resurrection and the life, for those of us who've kind of been walking through the Gospel of John, we be, it begins to dawn on us that Jesus is life in a lot of different kinds of ways that we've been learning as we've journeyed through the gospel of John. So, for example, John's gospel begins with something called the prologue. It's an introduction. It's the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, okay? And in John chapter 1, verse 3, in this prologue, John writes this, all things were created through him, that is, through Jesus, through the word. And apart from him, nothing was created She's, all things were all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being and that kind of tortured english is just as tortured in greek okay all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And this life, L-I-F-E, was the light, L-I-G-H-T, of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. Okay, what are we, what's John saying right there? Jesus made everything. He has the power of being the creator, right? It's kind of a long way to say, to say that. But then in John 3.16, right, the, goal, the, the football goalpost goal verse, one that memory, many of you have committed to memory, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. And so Jesus has the life that created everything. He is the source of creation. He has the life that is the eternal kind of life, which is both a quality and a quantity of life. Fast forward just a little ways to, to John chapter 10, and Jesus has abundant life. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. The thief comes to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. And so Jesus has this quality of life that invades normal people's life. And then Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so where are we going with all this? So Jesus says this. There is an ultimate foe to life. It's death. And every other foe falls underneath that ultimate foe. So, when I'm frustrated with people driving on the freeway and all of my now, and I want them to adjust to whatever it is I think you ought to, the way you ought to drive on the freeway, okay? Or when there are different versions of friction or tension in relationships. It could be with family. It could be with spouses. It could be with work. It could be in the community. All those different kinds of things. When I am fearful about the future. When, I am, when I'm all that kind of stuff. And so when we come into this, Jesus says there is an ultimate foe which informs and trumps all of those other foes. And that foe is death. And that, he says, is what I've come to do something about. See all those little foes that are underneath that? I can have a measure of confidence that I'm supposed to get that sorted and figured out and fixed. I gotta change my attitude on the freeway, I gotta be a better husband, I gotta, etc., etc., in there too. But there's a foe that kind of informs and drives all of those foes that I can't do anything about. Death. And Jesus says in this crescendo miracle that I have come to conquer the ultimate foe, death. So in all of this tension, Jesus loves the family. He intentionally delays, and it causes us to say, okay, I cling to your love in the midst of not knowing how this thing is going to get sorted. And into all of that, Jesus then proclaims that I have all these different kinds of life which describe the kind of life that I have in myself. And as that, I have come, I personally have come to conquer the ultimate foe, to kill it, to abolish it, to crush it, to remove it forever from my people. That I've come to do that. I am the resurrection and the life. 
He is in himself. Whoever, whoever believes in me will live even though he will die, ultimately, in these bodies. So into this, all of this tension, Jesus proclaims this, and, and we look and we see the beauty of, uh, and the strength of what it is that he has claimed, but we also see an aspect of him in the section that brings all of this together. It's the next section here where, where, where Jesus, we see Jesus and he was deeply moved and troubled, greatly troubled. You, you heard it in the reading that the translation that they brought out is that Jesus was angered. That Jesus moves in, into this and, and he comes upon the scene and, and there are people that are weeping and, and they're mourning. Now, this was actually, um, it's kind of an interesting first century cultural custom. So if you, in the first century, as a, Jewish, as a Jewish family, when you had someone who died, you hired, in fact, you were required, the custom was, you were required to hire professional mourners. And so even if you were poor, you were required to hire at least one professional mourner. If you were a family of means, which this family is a family of means, then you would have hired many professional mourners, and they would have come, and together they would have helped the family mourn and created a lot of crying, a lot of loud weeping, right? I mean, you know, can, can you imagine, right? So Jesus comes into this loud weeping, and he hears the loud weeping, experiences the loud weeping, and he responds in a way that has puzzled and kind of given head scratches to scholars for, well, for millennia, centuries at least. He's angered. The, the, the root word for, for that deeply moved in spirit is angry. He's indignant. Why? That's what's been the head scratcher. There seem to be two, two kind of two thoughts as to what Jesus was angry about. One is, that the, one is the hopelessness of the mourning. In other words, that the mourning is this kind of thing where people are grieving as if that there is no future, there is no hope for this, this person. So that, that's an aspect of it. But the deeper one that scholars also introduce into this as well is that Jesus is angry over the whole thing of sin and death. The, the destruction and the mayhem and the mourning and the hopelessness and, well, all of it. And what many think and see in this is that Jesus is operating, well, with both of those at the same time. That he sees this and he's angered, he's deeply moved, and, and he's responding to both of those things at the same time. But just when we think, okay, wow, so that's like a lot of depth about who Jesus is, then we have the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. In fact, would you just say that with me right now? Jesus wept. Okay, yeah, you just memorize a verse in the Bible. All of you tell me, I can't memorize that. Ah, you know, some of you are like, you've memorized entire books of the Bible. God bless you, I love it. Others of you are like, ah, you know, it's frustrating. I can't memorize things. Well, you just did. You just memorized. Right in here in worship, you just memorized a verse in the Bible. Come on, it's not that hard. So Jesus weeps, and now we have like, oh my goodness sakes. Jesus is deeply moved. He moves into this. And he weeps. 
that his love, that his care, that his premise that he is the resurrection and the life also joins with the fact that he comes into the presence of these people angered on, in one moment or at the same time over all that is going on in the, the havoc that sin and death is wreaking on his people. He never, he's the creator, God Almighty. He never designed it this way. But he's letting sin and death have their way for a time in his economy. He's come to do, do something about it. And so he joins his people in their weeping. Didn't we ask questions that all of us ask, but we don't like to ask in polite company? God, do you see? God, do you care? And so Jesus sees in a way that you and I can't possibly see. And we have this layered, rich, almost we can't even really quite figure it out that Jesus responds so viscerally. He's deeply moved, angered, and troubled by all of this. And at the same time, he's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not way over here. He's not dispassionate. He's not uncaring. He's not saying figure it out. He just gets in the, all of the mess of it all and he weeps with them. Now he knows exactly what's going to happen, right? But somehow, some way, God Almighty weeps with us. He joins us. He walks right into the junk, the mayhem, the confusion, the what is going on here. And he joins. He doesn't tell him to stop weeping. He doesn't say, get it together. He just weeps. Sometimes I think... <laughs> I don't have a big enough picture of Jesus to see him as all of that. Sometimes I can get with the fact that he would smile at his thought about other people. Sometimes that's difficult to receive as I think about myself. It's easy to think about with you guys, by the way. It's easy for me to think that Jesus smiles when he thinks about you. There's something very different about thinking and looking kind of Jesus, you know, figuratively in the eye and thinking that Jesus would smile. That's just my own junk. That's my own stuff or whatever, but here we are. But Jesus smiles when he thinks, and then he joins us in all of the stuff, knowing exactly what it is that he's going to do. He could have just removed himself from all of that and said, well, I'm about to raise Lazarus from the dead, so I'll let these people keep on crying. No. He just joins us. So in the journey with you and me, in the tension, in the delay, in the confusion, in the cacophony, in the noise of all of that, Jesus joins, knowing exactly what's going on and even weeping with us. 
Well, this thing continues to go because what Jesus is going to do now is this crescendo miracle that we've been trying to get, <laughs> trying to, get to here, right, that demonstrates his claim to be the resurrection and the life. And so we find this now in, in just in this next section here where Jesus, where Jesus tells Lazarus to come forth. Now, okay, it, there, there, you know, the Bible does have some humor in it occasionally, right? And so, so if you were able to read from a, from a King James version, you would see something along the lines, and I don't have the exact way that it's phrased in King James. I'm sorry about that. But something along the lines of Lazarus stinketh. <laughs> because he's been in the tomb for four days, right? And that's the premise, that's what the, the, the sisters say. Jesus, you want us to remove the stone? It, it, it's going to smell terrible. Okay, we, so we were having a, a conversation with, with our staff team, kind of one of those impromptu conversations where it was a deep and nuanced theological conversation that went something, something like this. Man, have you ever smelled a dead rat? Yeah, because we had some little crit. I want to be careful. We don't have any rats that we know about on campus or whatever, but we had a few critters on campus, and so we're like, okay, wow. And, and they, we found them dead and stuff, but they didn't really stink. We're like, wow. And, and then someone had to play the rat card. Yeah, like rats aren't that big, but oh my gosh, do they stink, right? So anyway, so the, the sisters say, listen, this is not the first time we smell, and it's going to smell terrible. And Jesus kind of blows right through all of that, and he says something that was fascinating to me in reading from one of the smart people on my bookshelf this week. <laughs> that Jesus doesn't ask the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead. He thanks the Father that Lazarus has already risen from the dead. In other words, this thing that God was going to do has already been done. And so he says to Lazarus, hey, Lazarus, come on out. And Lazarus walks out in all of his bandages. And I had people after the first service that were trying to figure out how Lazarus could walk all bandaged up in, in the stuff. But somehow he does. I wondered actually the other day if he, you know, if his face was covered and he bumped into walls. But that's a separate conversation, right? Lazarus walks out and Jesus says, untie him. In other words, Jesus said, what I have come to do is that. that dead people are going to become alive. The, the letters of the New Testament say this over and over and over again. There's a favorite phrase of Paul's. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which was, with which he loved us, even when we, are, we were dead in our transgress, transgressions, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2 for, that Paul loved this terminology of dead people becoming alive. And so Jesus said, what I have come to do is that. The crescendo miracle is that I'm going to make dead people alive. Now, many have wondered if Lazarus was actually mad at Jesus for raising him from the dead, because here he is in the presence of God, right, in that, and now Jesus brings him back to a sin-soaked world and all that kind of stuff or whatever. If they had kind of a sidebar conversation where Lazarus said something like, Jesus, really? 
Yeah, anyway, yes. But, but I'm sure Lazarus was exceedingly grateful to his sisters and all, that, all of that kind of stuff. But there's a final aspect here in this, in this as well. And it's a section that we didn't get the chance to read because just the, the, the section, that we, the, the Spotify thing that we had um, just broke off at that particular section. But the passage that we're gonna, we'll finish off and look at today has one last aspect to it, and it's this one right, right here. It's better for you that one man should die for the people. And there's a reason why we're going to end on this. And in John chapter 11, I'll just read just a, a, a small section of this. But the, the response of the, the chief priests and the Pharisees to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is this. Verse 49, a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. They're debating this, what to do about it. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation of all also, excuse me, not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The Jesus who has come and in love comes and he will be the one, the way that he will accomplish all of these things. The forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead is by dying for sin and rising on our behalf. And that you and I are in somehow him in, both, in all of that stuff. But as one smart person on my bookshelf, N.T. Wright, in his book, Broken Signposts, about, these, about seven different aspects of John's gospel wrote that the passage that we just looked at in John chapter 11 is framed by death. Lazarus dies, and at the back end of it, Jesus is going to die. The, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees decide that Jesus needs to die for the sake of the nation, not really even knowing what they're talking about in that. And it looks for all the world like that's just the way that life is. And the crescendo miracle in the middle of all of that is that resurrection, resurrection life breaks in. And that's where you and I are in the story. That resurrection life is broken in. That Jesus' life is broken in. That, Jesus, that those who believe in Jesus begin to possess his kind of life right now. Eternal life, abundant life, resurrection life, the power to do, to, to move into this and to live a completely different. It's why we sing songs like No More Slavery, He Has Set Us Free, all these layers that we bring in there. Why? Because the resurrection life isn't just for the future, it's for the now. That Jesus' life has broken into the death that brackets our world. And in his power, he invites us to do something. He invites us, he invited Mary and Martha, he invites us. He invites us to believe. So I'm going to welcome the worship team up, and they're going to continue to lead us in worship. But I'm, as they come up, I just want to invite us to believe, well, what we just walked through. Do we, can we, 
believe that God loves us. That when he looks at us, he smiles. That he wants us in his family. That he can't wait to be with us. Can we believe that? Can we believe that, that, that his delay has purpose? That his now is not our now. That there are reasons why the world is the way that it is, and it is not because he doesn't understand and he doesn't care. Those are off the table. And so somehow we live in that tension that while we don't know, he always does. Can we believe that? Can we believe that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life? That, that he really did rise from the dead? That his death, was, his death was for us and for our sins and that his life is for us and given to us? Can we believe that? Can we believe that there will come a day <laughs> where Jesus comes and, and he is with us and he sits with us and he gets with us and he weeps with us as he joins us in the reality of, well, the brokenness of planet Earth. But there will also be a day <laughs> where he will say to all of us, come forth, that we will rise, that we will receive new bodies that are designed for eternity. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that the mortal will take on immortality and the perishable will become imperishable. These bodies don't last, you guys. They can't. We need new ones and we will get those because Jesus is resurrection life. And all of that was accomplished because Jesus died for the nation and not just for the nation, but for all of us as well and rose from the grave. So I want to invite you to stand. Let's let the worship team lead us here as we continue to sing praise to him.
because he's alive <laughs> and that life has become ours in his resurrection and the life do you believe this and so as we go seacoasters we go out as people who have had the resurrection life of Jesus offered to us and if you've trusted placed your faith in Jesus Christ then the life of the creator and the life of the one who possesses eternal life and the life of the one who has abundant life and the life, the life of the one who is the resurrection and the life is in you. Life has broken through all of the death that surrounds us so that we can live as God's people out in our world. God bless you guys. So good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. Join us out in the, in the plaza. If we can answer any questions for you, we would love it. And we will see you next week and for Deck the Halls.
Steal. 